0: Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantine podcast. Brian Stid, the host and producer of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Jen McMenemy, Ancient History fangirl. Samuel Hanson, host of the podcast Relatively Prime Stories. Peter Adamson, the History of Philosophy podcast. Jamie Redfern. Benjamin Jacobs, David Petrusha, Eric from Reconsider. I'm Eric Marcus, Jenny Williamson, Zachary
1: Davis, Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. Intelligent Speech 2019 in New York City was a blast, and I am thrilled to announce that I will be back again for 2020. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it'll be online this year at intelligentspeechconference.com. Intelligent Speech is an online conference that brings together the best educational podcasts and their listeners, and it is taking place this year online only at intelligentspeechconference.com from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on June 27th, 2020. There will be approximately 40 of the best educational podcasters available that day, presenting a wide range of topics, as well as roundtable debates from several of us. And listeners will be able to fully participate online, including being involved and Q&As with all the presenters and more. A one-day pass for the conference is currently priced at $10 for early bird tickets. So for more details, go to intelligentspeechconference.com and see you there on June 27th. We shall never surrender. This will be an event that you don't want to miss, so I hope to virtually see you there at Intelligent Speech 2020. Five. Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry and I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And today we are not rating the popes from Peter to Francis because we're talking about the sixth ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, also known as the Third Council of Constantinople.
0: Oh, good! Just what I wanted to learn about. <laughs>
1: And just to be clear, because we will be generally seeing this in sources both referred to as the Sixth Ecumenical Council and the Third Council of Constantinople. They're the same thing. Sixth and third of different things. So just keep that in mind. We are going through sources later and it's called the Sixth Ecumenical Council or the Third Council of Constantinople. So... The entirety of this council centers on the ongoing debate about monothelitism and monoenergism, which we've been discussing for ages. But if you happen to be listening to this episode without the context that's been provided in our previous 10 episodes or so, we will do a very quick definition and summary of the events thus far, just so everybody's on the same page. So, monothelitism the word fry never wants to hear again. <laughs> it is the newest incarnation of the Christological debate evolving from the previous monophysite controversy, but instead of arguing that Christ had one nature, they argue that Christ has one will. monothelites will accept the two natures of Christ, divine and human, as defined by the Council of Chalcedon, but they will argue that his will is God's will, and therefore it is a singular will. This position was most prevalent and vehement in the East, just like monophysitism has been. And the opposing view with Christ having both a human and divine will is called the diophilete position. And this is the view of the West and the Pope. Monoednergism is essentially the same theology as monothelitism, but you take the word will, You replace it with energy, and you deliberately don't define what you mean by energy. It is a lot more vague and a lot less important because it is only sort of the add-on to the larger debate about monothelitism. The first time that monothelitism came in contact with the papacy was in 634. It's touching it. Don't touch the monothelitism. You will be infected by something. Monothelitism. Clearly. Well, and that's what happened because it happened in 634 when Pope Honorius receives the letter from the Patriarch of Constantinople, Sergius. And the letter, which had the full backing of Emperor Heraclius, explained the argument for a monothelite theology, hoping that the Pope would agree to a singular divine will of Christ as opposed to, to conflicting or opposing wills big key here, conflicting or opposing is how it's presented to him. So in his reply, Pope Honorius agreed with Sergius that Christ would not have opposing wills. So indeed, perhaps it could be one will. And then Sergius took Honorius's agreement as confirmation of monophysitism as a whole And that led to Sergius and the emperor issuing a decree called the Ecthesis, which compelled the whole of the Byzantine Empire and the whole of the church to confirm and adhere to monothelite Christianity. However, the new pope Severinus did not accept the one will, and he was not vague in his stance like the letter from Sergius had been. So he denounces monothelitism and confirms the diothelite view of Christ having two wills, human and divine, and refused to adhere to the ecthesis. This led to a standoff where the emperor refused to confirm Severinus's election as pope for over a year and a half. This is also where the Exarch and his supporters raided the Lateran Palace in an attempt to make Severinus relent. But Severinus never relented. The emperor did, and he eventually confirmed Severinus as pope, and when pressed by the next pope, Pope John IV, he even repudiated the ecthesis before his death. Now, unfortunately, despite this repudiation, the ecthesis was never officially removed from the law books, and this led to further conflict under the next patriarch of Constantinople, Pyrrhus, who continued to argue for monothelitism. Pope Theodora ordered him to be deposed, and during his deposition, Pyrrhus was moved by the formidable Maximus the Confessor to recant in favor of orthodoxy, and then he gets restored to his bishopric. Only to go back to his old ways very shortly after, like a dog to their vomit, they (sighs) always say. Going back over that again. Yep. It is a turn of phrase. And I mean, some dogs love to eat vomit. My one dog, (laughs) if he throws up. We have definitely
0: already gone over this and do not need to rehash the whole dog vomit
1: situation. (laughs) So many dog vomit situations. (laughs) Pyrrhus has also gone back to his old heresy like a dog to his vomit, and this time he was deposed and excommunicated. And then his successor Paul was an Orthodox bishop, but given that he practiced toleration of the monophilate elite in Constantinople, Pope Theodore refused to acknowledge his consecration and called upon the churches of Rome and the West to press Paul to stand up for Orthodoxy. And they pushed him. And Paul was pushed right into monothelitism. He figured, you know, if my toleration is not good enough, then I will double down. And he convinces the new emperor, Constance II, to suspend the ecthesis in favor of a stronger legal decree called the type of Constanz, which forbade any further discussion on Christological debate, full stop. It's a gag order on the West, legally forbidding them from defending diophilete orthodoxy. And this absolutely incensed the papacy, and Pope Theodore's successor, Martin, immediately called the Lateran Council of 649, that was intended to be an ecumenical council, to officially condemn monothelitism and the type of Constance. Now, we know where this went. This led to the deposition, arrest, torture, trial exile and eventually death of pope martin Mm -hmm. and after martin was taken pope eugene was elected mainly because the empire thought that he would be a meek puppet that would agree to their plans i thought you said meat puppet well that too they thought he was a meat puppet that they could just hate it this makes the next sentence even better because eugene refused to be bribed or intimidated into accepting monothelitism even when they threatened to roast him, the meat puppet. (laughs) Yep. But then, after Eugene, there was a small period of lull, and the debate didn't rise again until 668, when Emperor Constance was assassinated and succeeded by his son, Constantine IV, who, unlike his father, had zero love for monothelitism. In fact, the new emperor was dedicated to resolving the conflict in the churches, and once he was able to overcome the Muslim siege of Constantinople, he wrote to Pope Donus, proposing a true ecumenical council be held, to bring the matter to an end once and for all. The letter arrived after Pope Donus' death, but the new Pope Agatho seized the opportunity, and so the council was planned. And that was 46 years of tumultuous religious and imperial history slammed out in half a page, so of course, if you want more details, there is an episode for every pope that we have just mentioned. And then some. And then so many more. I know you're going to be excited to see the backside of monothelitism, but there are more controversies to come.
0: I don't care about monothelitism's butt. It's probably flat and saggy. Okay, so
1: we're objectifying the concept of
0: monophiletism. It's been a long quarantine.
1: Okay, so that killed me. In order to prepare for this council... Pope Agatho ordered several pre-councils to be held throughout Italy and the Western churches, like Milan and Gaul and England, so that the Western bishops could confirm the diathlete's stance on Christ's human and divine wills in the most accurate, articulate, and compelling way, and then they would send those canons on to Rome. And then in Rome, at Easter, Pope Agatho received the legates from each council, along with 125 bishops, to sign confirmation of these canons sent by the pre-councils, and then they would select the most learned of those legates to go and represent the pope at the council that was about to be held. The delegates were then sent with a letter from the pope to the emperor, and a letter written by the pope was to be read at the council, backed by all 125 bishops in Rome. So the council itself took place over the course of nearly a year, from November 7th of 680 to September 16th of 681, and it was held in the Trulis Hall of the Imperial Palace in Constantinople. We're going to be coming back to this Trulis Hall. There is a council called the Trulin Council. This is not that council, but held in the same place. Besides the papal legates, major figures in attendance included the Emperor, the Patriarch of Constantinople, George I, and the Bishop of Antioch, Macarius. Macarius had been a resident in Constantinople for some time, considering the Muslim conflict in Antioch, so he couldn't actually be in Antioch, and similarly, representatives were appointed for the Patriarch of Jerusalem and Alexandria because both of those seas were currently vacant and unable to be filled due to Muslim incursions in those areas. Now, how many bishops actually attended the council is slightly unclear, with estimates ranging from between 150 to 300, with an average account of about 170. The first session shows only about 40 signatures, suggesting some bishops took much longer to arrive, but at least 150 signed to the final session. They were coming and they were going. So the sessions themselves are not recorded in detail, but we do know there were 16 sessions and that the emperor participated in at least 12. The prime initiative, of course, was to discuss and debate the merits of monothelitism versus diothelitism, and the complexities in setting precise canonical wording over orthodox theology. But the most important and influential moment of the council was the reading of Pope Agatho's letter. And this letter is long. Like, it was Eighteen pages in a Word document long, and that was with all of Agatho's quotations of other religious scholars taken out. Oh, that's really long. No shocker here, I am not going to read it out or try to quote it at length, but we'll summarize the content because it is extremely important. First, Agatho outlines and reaffirms the canonical justifications for papal primacy and the authority that the Pope holds as the apostolic successor to be infallible in doctrine. I have a small quote here. And briefly, we shall intimate to your divinely instructed piety what the strength of our apostolic faith contains, which we have received through apostolic tradition and through the tradition of apostolic pontiffs and that of the five holy general synods, through which the foundations of Christ's Catholic Church have been strengthened and established. He also praises the emperor at length for being a man of clemency and toleration in contrast to the violence shown by his father, but he also praises him for being the sort of man who would want to pursue the truth of orthodoxy to hold this council and to heal the schisms of the church caused by heretics. He then explicitly defines the existence of Christ's two wills, divine and human. He argues that these wills are unconfused, unopposed, and inseparable, and that the human will of Christ is uplifted by the omnipotency of his divinity. He repeats time and time again that we profess the two natural wills and operations of Christ. So he is leaving absolutely zero room for any interpretation other than staunch diaphilitism. He's just going to yell two a lot. Two wills, just like there's two natures and as a result, two energies. So yes, lots of that. After the reading of this letter, before the whole of the council... The Patriarch of Constantinople, George, accepted Agatho's letter as Orthodox, and then following his lead, all of the Eastern bishops did as well. The Western bishops, of course, had already signed their name to it, so the council agreed to use Agatho's definitions as the foundation for the canons and profess their adherence to the words of and professed their adherence to the word of Pope Agatho to quote unquote repeatedly affirm the inerrancy of the apostolic see and declared that, by Agatho, Peter spoke.
0: Yes, that whole papal primacy business. Huge papal primacy.
1: So, the only prominent bishop who defended monothelitism against the letter of Agatho was Macarius of Antioch, the one we mentioned earlier, who was immediately deposed and condemned. Now, we're going to take a bit of a left turn here, because there is... Sort of a strange occurrence that happened in the middle of this council. Just a little tidbit that came. Did Santa
0: come back from the grave to punch somebody? It's along those lines in a way,
1: I guess, in terms of just being totally ridiculous. So what happened was there was a monothelite priest who jumped up and declared that he could prove the one will of Christ by raising someone from the dead. Huh. I don't know exactly how he felt his logic, but he said, I will raise somebody from the dead in the middle of this council, and that will prove for once and for all that Christ has one will.
0: I'm not following his logic. Are we assuming that that person went to heaven already and is like, yeah, they're same dude?
1: <laughs> I mean, that would almost make more sense. We do actually get an account of how he thought this was going to work, so... I will quote directly from Joseph Francis Kelly's book, The Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church, A History. So he says, This council also witnessed a genuinely weird event. A monothelite priest claimed that he could prove the truth of his theology by raising a man from the dead. He had a corpse brought into the council chamber, laid a monothelite confession of faith on the body, and then prayed into the dead man's ear. Alas for the priest, the deceased remained so, and so monothelitism remained condemned. He just brought a corpse
0: in and was like, hey, pretty mama, go and whisper in your ear. Gonna whisper, Christ
1: has one will. assumed that somehow he would awake. This is not an obscure wild reference that someone made up. I mean, at first, when I read this, I was incredibly dubious, because I couldn't find this cited anywhere else other than his book, with no footnotes and just a small mention on the Wikipedia page. But it turns out that they mention this man in the official documents of the council in a letter sent to the emperor by the council. So this really happened, okay? So this is what they say about him in the official letter from the council to the emperor. Likewise, also, that old man, Polychronius.
0: Is his name Polychronius? Polychronius, the Crone Whisperer.
1: The many crones. Likewise, that old man Polychronius, with an infantile intelligence who promised he would raise the dead, and who, when they did not rise, was laughed at, and all who have taught or do teach or shall presume to teach one will and one operation in the incarnate Christ. So when this happened, they all laughed at him and carried on (laughs) I would,
0: uh, look, it's absurd to begin with, and then it doesn't work. Yeah, it's time to laugh.
1: There's just a dead man laying in the middle of this very important, very high-minded rhetorical. And they clearly had to go get the dead body, so, like, it's a big spectacle already. 100%. And everybody just laughed at him, and that was that. At the end, the final canons of the council condemned the monothelites and the monoenergists as heretics, and then confirmed the canons of the first five ecumenical councils, and used the language of Agatho to define Christ's wills. So it says, But one and the same only begotten Son of God, the word our Lord Jesus Christ, according as the prophets of old have taught us, and as our Lord Jesus Christ himself has instructed us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has delivered to us, defining all this we likewise declare that in him are two natural wills and two natural operations, indivisibly, incontrovertibly, inseparably, inconfusably, according to the teaching of our Holy Fathers. And these two natural wills are not contrary to one another, God forbid, as the impious heretics assert, but his human will follows and that not as resisting and reluctant, but rather as subject to his divine and omnipotent will. That is their definition of two natures, two wills, two everything. There was also an outright condemnation of the prominent monophilites by name, and a claim for the Orthodox defenders. So I am going to quote this bit for you, the many acclamations of the Fathers and the Anathemas, because... This is what the council really boils down to. First, the acclamations. Many years to the emperor. Many years to Constantine, our great emperor. Many years to the Orthodox king. Many years to our emperor that makes peace. Many years to Constantine, a second Martian. Martian? Are you sure? Martian. So it is definitely spelled Martian in the sources, but they mean Marcion as in the Emperor Marcion. Many years to Constantine, a new Theodosius. Many years to Constantine, a new Justinian. Many years to the keeper of the Orthodox faith. O Lord, preserve the foundation of the churches. O Lord, preserve the keeper of the faith. Many years to Agatho, Pope of Rome. Many years to George, Patriarch of Constantinople. Many years to Theophanus, Patriarch of Antioch. Many years to the Orthodox Council. Many years to the Orthodox Senate. And then we get into the condemnations. To Theodore of Farron, the heretic anathema.
0: Anathema.
1: Oh, you, you do that every time I give you a name.
0: Oh no, that's too many. Just the one time. Only one anathema from me.
1: To Sergius, the heretic anathema. To Cyrus, the heretic anathema. To Honorius, the heretic anathema. To Pyrrhus, the heretic anathema. To Paul, the heretic anathema. To Peter, the heretic anathema. To Macarius the heretic, anathema.
0: These are the besmirchers. <laughs> These are the besmirchers.
1: To Polycronus the heretic, who thought he could raise the dead, anathema. To Apergius of Perga, the heretic, anathema. To all heretics, anathema. To all who side with heretics, anathema. May the faith of the Christians increase and long years to the Orthodox and Ecumenical Council. That's quite a lot. These canons were sent to the emperor in a letter and to Rome for papal confirmation. But considering that Pope Agatho had died in January, the canons were received and confirmed by our next pope, Leo II. Overall, the lasting legacy of the council is a very positive one. The church schism between Constantinople and Rome is ended, putting the churches of the East and West back together in communion. And the canons defining Christ as having two energies and two wills, both divine and human, actively condemned and suppressed monothelitism and monoenergism putting an official end to the controversy. The legacy for the papacy, though, is a little bit more complicated, because on one hand we have one pope who is vindicated and one pope who is excommunicated. We have Pope Martin, who had been tortured and died for the faith. He's honored, and the canons that he passes at the Council of the Lateran are confirmed in this council, and the theology that he fought to defend was validated. This is a marked moment of rectification for the church. But then we have Pope Honorius, who, because of his vague commentary of two wills as conflicting wills, getting anathematized. And he will go down in history because of this council as the heretic pope. To Honorius, the heretic anathema. Or as Leo II will put it in his confirmation of the canons, we anathematize the inventors of the new error, that is Theodorus Sergius and also Honorius, who did not attempt to sanctify this apostolic church with the teaching of apostolic tradition, but by profane treachery permitted its purity to be polluted. So this is an entirely different market moment in the church with lasting legacies to challenge concepts like papal infallibility. Now we're going to end quickly with a little interesting note that this council is actually honored with its own commemoration day. This council like has a feast day. It's February 23rd, the commemoration of the Holy Fathers the Sixth Ecumenical Council. And this took me on a bit of a rabbit hole digression, because I wanted to see if the other ecumenical councils had something similar. Why is this council, of all the councils, suddenly getting a feast day for itself? Turns out, some of the other ones sort of do, but mostly in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So, they're the fourth ecumenical council at Chalcedon, has a commemoration day of July 13th, but this has also somewhat been extended to be the fathers of the first six ecumenical councils instead. So instead of just being the feast day of the fourth ecumenical council, it's all of the six. And then the seven is commemorated separately on the 11th of October. So this one stands right now on its own with a feast day of January 23rd. So that is the wild ride of the end of monotheletism, attempts to raise the dead and all, but now we can finally maybe kind of sort of put it behind us. Until the next big thing, of course. Uh. It's coming. Uh. It will not be long, and it will be a long one, Fry. Are you ready to take on the iconoclasm? No. No, I don't think you are. Oh, but we're going to. It's coming. But... For now, that is the end of this episode, so we have some thank yous to make and some people to absolve of their temporal punishments. For that, we need to thank Malcolm Shurer, Cody Gillard, Tim Lutton, Stephen Trevick, and Tom Duncan Henry Dewar.
0: Ego te absolvo.
1: We also have some other thank yous to make, so we need to thank Vulgar History, Can't Make This Up History, partial historians and our fake history and totalis rankium who have all recommended us on twitter lately thank you thank you so much as always we're trying to hit a new twitter follower goal before our anniversary and they are helping make that happen we're doing so well we are it's i didn't think it was actually a possible thing when i actually put it up but we're we're making progress we also need to thank jessica ends who emailed us with some resources which is awesome And W.J. Hayes for some sources as well. And I also need to thank Sam on Twitter. I have no further information for you, Sam. But he helped verify a source for me for an article I was writing about Papal Pets for Lyceum. So thank you, Sam. That's a lot of thank yous. But I mean, it's been a while since we've recorded. So thank you all.
0: Everyone is so terribly loud in my home.
1: We have so many loud, loud children and so many terribly wonderful people helping us make this show. And those terribly loud children are also, by the way, why we're doing bi weekly right now because, you know, they gotta live. They gotta take up life energy.
0: Oh, so many. So many life energies. It's okay. It's all right. We'll get through this.
1: Yeah, we will. And for now, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.